Um, so uh, what we're going to talk about uh, today um, is, as you see the title, Me, Myself, I. Uh, we could just uh, really think uh, of this as a very big question. Who are we? Um, who are we? Um, who is God? And what does that mean in terms of our relationship, not just between ourselves and God, but our relationships with other people, with other groups of people, uh, etc.? Now, this is um, a Jewish question, of course, uh, and we're going to be focusing on Jewish sources, the, uh, mainly on biblical texts, though if anyone comes tomorrow, we will be looking also at at least um, uh, modern Jewish philosophers' reading of a Talmudic text. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with thinkers who are interested mainly in Judaism. But I think what's really important uh, to emphasize, and I'm sure this is the case for this afternoon, uh, as well is that these are human questions. Uh, and Jewish questions at the same time. So our question is, what does the Jewish tradition have to tell us about these very big questions? And as I'm sure none of you will be surprised to hear, uh, there are many things that the Jewish tradition has to tell us, and it's not just that there are many things, there are many things that actually seem to contradict one another, or at least in tension with one another. So my purpose isn't at all to try and solve this question, but to really open uh, it up for discussion. So today I want to talk about two very important Jewish thinkers. The first, probably the most important Jewish thinker of all time, probably most people agree, though they agree for very different reasons, uh, which would be uh, Moses Maimonides. Uh, Maimonides, also known as Rambam, the 12th century uh, Jewish uh, philosopher, um, first of all. And secondly, a less a uh, universally um, loved Jewish thinker, a 20th century Jewish thinker, Martin Buber, um, who is very famous for, among other things, his philosophy uh, of dialogue. Now, Maimonides and Buber are very different from one another. And what I'm going to really be doing today is really bringing out some of those differences, though something I'm happy to talk about at any point, maybe not at any point, at the end, uh, is actually the ways in which there are some really uh, important similarities. They're writing in very different contexts, uh, and it's important for us to appreciate the kind of context in which each one is writing and the reasons why they make the claims that they do. Another way of putting this is that uh, I think any writer, modern, medieval, ancient, uh, is always trying to answer a question. And it's not always clear to us readers, especially us modern readers, reading materials that are less familiar to us. It's not always clear to us what those questions are that they're trying to answer. So we have to think to ourselves, what's bothering each of our thinkers? And that's one of the things uh, we're going to talk about. So let's get to the big question. What kind of creatures are we, human beings? That sounds, in a way, like a very um, straightforward, simple question. Perhaps not. But let's, let's find out. What kind of creatures are we? Now, if you think about this, if I said to you, Okay, from a Jewish point of view, what kind of creatures are we? What would you say? Thank you very much. Exactly the answer I was looking for. <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, created in the image of God, right? And um, where is it that we first encounter that idea? Good. Okay, early on. And, and, and when exactly? Because we all have our JPSs right in front of us. Okay, good. I'm just looking for a chapter and verse. Just worth looking at. Um, 
The answer I will tell you. One twenty isn't it one twenty seven? Yes, one twenty seven. Can someone just read that for me? And, and if you read it, uh, feel free to read it in Hebrew, but also just read it in English as well. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so chapter one, verse twenty-seven. Correct. Oh yeah, please read it in, in Hebrew. Anyway. Okay, great. Okay. Translation. Uh, and God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Great. Thank you. Now, this is the, this idea that the human being is created in the image of God is maybe the most, one of the most sort of famous sentiments of not just the Jewish tradition, but let's just say Western civilization. Okay? It's the basis for actually a lot of what seem to be secular laws. Um, it, it, it's really central. It really is not clear what it means, okay? It, unless someone has answers to offer. It really isn't clear what this means. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Now, in order to answer this question, it would be helpful if we knew what, what kind of being, if a being at all, God is. Because if we have an image of something, it's good to know what it's an image of. Okay, so what is God? What does it mean to be created uh, in the image of God? Now, um, let me just mention a couple of things just very briefly. As I'm sure all of you know, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, uh, is full of uh, references to God uh, as having um, something that you could have an image of. What I mean by that is God is usually, uh, not just often, but usually, almost always, described in pretty concrete terms, okay? Uh, so, for instance, no, you don't have to look at this. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Uh, Exodus uh, 24, 9 through 10, uh, we get uh, a description um, of uh, God's feet uh, are like uh, the likeness of a pavement of sapphire. Okay, those are God's feet. Uh, if you think of the book of Leviticus, God is smelling all kinds of things all the time, sacrifices. Um, if you... Uh, Look at, for instance, Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. This is actually from the Amidah. You are probably familiar with this. Um, but it's, um, it's those uh, be creatures attending to God um, who, and the description of, of their wings, um, two faces. Ezekiel 126 uh, is probably the most famous uh, example or infamous example, depending on your perspective. Um, of a description uh, of God, Daniel 7-9. I'm just giving you uh, various examples. Those are just descriptions of God as having human features. Uh, the implication that God smells, God has a nose, God has feet, uh, maybe there are wings, there's a throne. Uh, and that doesn't even, even get to the main human feature that God seems to have in the Bible, which is what? Personality. Personality. Okay, what kind of personality does God seem to have? He's jealous. Jealous, okay, complicated, <laughs> complicated, jealous, absolutely, he's com right, well, look, he's jealous, he's loving, he's merciful, okay, that's right, uh, he, God, God seems to have a lot of feelings, okay, so, so the question of, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to at all simplify this, and probably most of you, if not all of you are familiar with these kinds of questions, I just want to set us up to begin the discussion, 
Uh, if we thought about what does it mean to be created in the image of God, actually maybe a simple answer could be, or a straightforward answer could be, well, you know, we human beings, we have lots of feelings, we have feet and noses. Uh, God is just a really big version of that. Okay, And it might be the case that if we looked at um, the Bible, uh, that we would get a lot of good confirmation uh, for that point of view. Okay? Uh, and so then the question, what kind of creatures are we? We're, we have a lot of emotions. Um, what's great about God? Is God is the greatest being of all? Therefore, maybe God's just the biggest and the strongest. Uh, and that would be the end of the day. But as we all know, uh, this is not the way in which not just the Jewish tradition, but also the Christian tradition and also other traditions that in one way or another are related to the Bible. This is not the way in which, or the main way in which, uh, we tend to think about ourselves as creatures and God uh, as God. And this brings us directly to Maimonides. Okay? Now, I said at the beginning, we have to think about what's bothering uh, someone. Well, what's really bothering Maimonides, and I'll say something about him in a second just by way of very, very brief introduction, what's really bothering Maimonides is this idea that anyone should think exactly what I just said. Okay? This is exactly like, so, so for someone to get up in a room, for Maimonides it certainly wouldn't be a woman, we're going to get to that point uh, in here, that's actually part of it. Um, but for someone to get up and say, oh, well, you know, I read the um, Hebrew Bible, and I'm, I'm just going to, I'm making this all up. I'm a professor at Princeton. I, I know how to read. I read it, and look, God is just giant uh, and has all these human features, and uh, okay, that's the way it is. For Maimonides, that would be the worst possible uh, kind of thing to conclude, okay? So terrible is it to conclude something like that that Maimonides says that everybody absolutely everyone, uh, men, women, children, not very smart people, have to know that everything I just said is completely wrong and false. Now that's a tricky thing. Uh, that might be a nice idea, but that's a tricky thing to try and pull off because we seem to have a lot of evidence that that's not what our text says. So let me give a brief introduction uh, to Maimonides, um, who he was, what he was doing, and then I want us to take some time to look directly at some of what he has to say uh, in the Guide of the Perplexed, which I'll say something about, and also as it re relates to the third chapter of Genesis. Okay? All right, so who was Maimonides uh, or Rambam? You know, there's a joke, maybe many of you have heard it about Maimonides. It's, you know, it's everyone has Maimonides. Get it? The Maimonides. The point is, is that everybody has their own version of Maimonides, and this is very much true. And this tells us a lot, um, not just about Maimonides, but also I think about the history um, of Jewish thought. Because there's so many different interpretations of Maimonides, they very much correspond with uh, many different interpretations of uh, Judaism throughout the ages. Menachem Kellner, who is a Maimonides scholar, he teaches at the uh, University of Haifa, I once heard him say that aside from uh, the uh, Tanakh and the Talmud, uh, he said aside from that, he said the one figure or the one set of texts that we have without which there wouldn't be any Judaism would be the Mishnah Torah and the Guide of the Perplexed. Okay, and I think that's that's very much true, um, and we can't sort of get into all of it here, but I think what, what I want to say to you is that what Maimonides did in the 12th century um, led 
to so many different strands of Jewish thought in his, immediately following his death and still today um, that one, I think, can't really overestimate how important he is. Now, one of the tricky parts about the fact that there are so many Maimonideses, <laughs> if that's how you say it, um, is that um, it's, it's hard to characterize a lot of his work, but I'm going to try and characterize it just in, in the most um, straightforward uh, kinds of ways. So who was Maimonides? Um, he uh, was born, uh, as, as you see, uh, in 1135. He was born in Spain. Um, he's named Maimonides, of course, and this is why he's also called Rambam. Why? Thank you, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Right, his father's name was Maimon. Um, his family f fled um, when he was quite young. Uh, he, they, they fled Spain because of the uh, Alamahads, a kind of fanatical Islamic uh, group. They went to North Africa. He, the family eventually settled in Egypt. Uh, and so Maimonides um, had most of his intellectual career and his uh, rabbinical careers uh, in Egypt. In fact, he was um, the Nagid or the head of all of the Egyptian Jews. Um, he was also, as you may know, uh, what profession was he? He was a doctor, right? So I don't know if everybody still wants their children to be doctors, but there he is. Um, so Maimonides was a doctor. Um, he was someone uh, who corresponded with Jews from all over the world on halakhic matters. Um, he also um, wrote or compiled, two, two, I think, his two main important works, although he had many important works, was one, the Mishnah Torah, a second Mishnah, the idea being that uh, he codified uh, the, the Talmud, this was his claim in the Mishnah Torah, and then this other book, and again, he wrote many other things as well, but this other book, um, which the Mishnah Torah, of course, was written in Hebrew, but the, the, his other book, which is most famous, The Guide of the Perplexed, is written in Arabic, in Judeo-Arabic, meaning it's not Hebrew characters, uh, but Judeo-Arabic. Uh, and these books are, are very different from one another. The first, the Mishnah Torah, as I said, is a code of law. And the second, the Guide of the Perplexed, that we're going to talk about, uh, is a philosophical treatise. Though it's not even really clear what kind of philosophical treatise it is. Okay? It's written in the form of a letter. It's written to Maimonides' student, Joseph. Uh, Joseph is the perplexed in the title of The Guide of the Perplexed. Why is Joseph perplexed? Well, if you think about what I just said right at the beginning, all the things that Maimonides would be very upset about uh, if he heard someone say that, uh, that, look, let's, look, let's read uh, the, uh, the Bible and what do we find out? We find out that God is just a very giant person with very strong emotions. Um, why is Joseph perplexed about that? Well, Joseph is perplexed because Joseph is a very learned student. He knows a lot about philosophy, which in Maimonides' context is largely Aristotelian philosophy, but Aristotelian philosophy received by Muslim philosophers, and that's actually very important. So it's Aristotelian philosophy. Um, and Aristotle, as many of you may know, has a very different view of God than the, the, the description of God that we just talked about. Aristotle's God is famously called, anyone ever took a philosophy class, this would have come up, the unmoved mover. What does that mean? It just simply means that if you think about how the world began, if you keep saying, well, this caused that, and this caused that, what happens? You have an infinite regress. So the unmoved mover is basically the placeholder for uh, 
the beginning. Okay, it's more than that, but the placeholder for the beginning. Uh, the unmoved mover is not uh, a being who has any kind of feelings or any kind of human attributes. Why? Because uh, human feelings and attributes um, are not perfect. This, would, this is the premise. Okay, they're not perfect. Why aren't they perfect? Well, because human beings aren't perfect. Why? Why aren't we perfect? For well, lots of reasons. But one main reason we're not perfect is because one of the ways we just talked about how God is described in the Bible is we're reactive. Okay? People make us mad, or situations make us mad. Just as, say, for instance, um, the uh, Jews or the Israelites make God mad. Okay? And to be reactive from a philosophical point of view or from an Aristotelian point of view specifically is to be imperfect. Why is it to be imperfect? It's because you're not self-sustaining. Uh, you're not uh, independent. You're always responding to what's outside of you. And that's going to be very important because that's exactly what Maimonides wants to reject in terms of God. It's going to be exactly what Buber is going to affirm in terms of his understanding of God and his understanding of human beings. So I don't want to give the whole... Uh, answer away uh, to the, these questions, but let me simply say that uh, Maimonides has very much an idea of God as a perfect being, and that has certain implications, what it means to be a perfect being. Being, it means to be a completely holy, with a W, rational being, okay? A rational being, not reactive, independent, unified. We'll talk more about what that means, okay? That's what God is. And so what is, what is it to be created in the image of God for Maimonides? Uh, it's to have a rational capacity. Uh, and therefore, to the best of our abilities, and our abilities are limited, we'll talk about that, it's, it's to have the ability uh, to try as best we can as finite human beings to imitate God, to become closer to God by perfecting our rational capacities. Okay? That's one very important model, Maimonides' model. Um, but what we're going to see uh, in the second part of what we do today is the way in which I think a lot of 20th century Jewish thought, not just Buber, I'll, I'll mention some other thinkers, uh, but the way in which a lot of 20th century thought uh, very much rejects this idea, not just about God, uh, if we move beyond sort of theology or the Jewish world, uh, but also about the world as such. Maybe rationality, this claim is going to be, is not all it's cracked up to be. Okay? Maybe there's actually something wrong with adhering to this completely rationalistic uh, worldview. And maybe, and this is what Buber's going to say, what makes us most human, uh, the fact that we are affected by outside experiences, by other people, by God, is really uh, what not only defines us, but really makes us the wonderful creatures that we are. And to be like God is to be vulnerable, to be affected, to be in a situation where um, other people can act upon us. Okay, so with that, um, let me stop. And what I'd like to do now is maybe we're going to take about a half hour, okay? And maybe you want to work in partners. Do you do that? you do that? Yes? Okay, let's work in partners. Or you can do threes if you want, however you like. Um, and what I want you to look at um, are uh, the Genesis 3. Okay, remember that that's, I want you to keep in mind the verse 127 about being created in the image of God. You might want to read chapter 2 where Adam and Eve are created once again 
but don't focus. You, you can focus on it, but not too much. And then I want you to read the Maimonides uh, reading that I have for you in the packet from the Guide of the Perplexed. Even though they're together, please notice they're from different parts of the guide. Uh, what I'd like you to do, um, and this is why I want you to work with other people, uh, is I'd like you to see if with a partner, uh, if you can, for each of the sections uh, of the reading, you can come up with maybe two sentences, two or three sentences, this was the point, okay? I just think this is a, a helpful thing to do. See if you can just say, here's the point, um, maybe that's one sentence, and then the second sentence is, this is why it matters, okay? And then when we come back together, uh, we're going to uh, talk about that some more, okay? And big questions we want to keep in mind, once again, I what kind of creatures of me, and what kind of being, if a being at all, is God? How are these two questions uh, connected to one another? One final point, pay attention, and it won't be difficult to pay attention to this, but pay attention to what this might have to do with gender, okay, in answering this question. All right, half hour. Let's begin again, uh, and just so you know, and this is the case of all important uh, texts, you can always reread this uh, and reread all the pages surrounding it. So this is just the beginning uh, of our conversation. Okay, so I asked you to read the um, selections from the guide along with uh, Genesis 3, okay? And we already mentioned this idea, we're created in the image of God, what in the world does that mean? But that that's such a central idea of all of Western civilization. If one just read just chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, uh, you know, um, we learn so much there about um, who we are as human beings, why it is that life is hard in the way that it is, uh, what, how hard it is to be a sort of... Uh, material being, especially a woman giving birth, and the man has to work so hard. Uh, we learn about, uh, we seem to learn about sex, or at least shame. Uh, that's a question, whether we do or don't. Uh, we seem to learn something about good and evil. All of this said, um, I think one of the ama amazing things about chapter 3, and actually about much of the Bible, is that it's really not clear what any of it means. Okay, it's, it's There's a lot in there, and it's really... Uh, I think, quite ambiguous in many ways. So uh, let's see how Maimonides interprets uh, Genesis 3, and that's also not in a very straightforward way either, but I think we're going to get at some of these big uh, questions for him. Okay, so let's begin a little bit more philosophically, and that's with the first chapter of the guide. Uh, in, in the first chapter, which you've now all read, um, Maimonides makes very clear um, that uh, this idea of image or tselem doesn't mean a physical copy, okay? It means something else he wants to say. What does it mean? We get a sense of what it does mean. Anyone? Someone wrote their two sentences on, on chapter one? Did anyone write two sentences on chapter one? It's okay if you didn't. I think it was so confusing that uh, I didn't really have a good sense of it. Okay, no, that's like he's dealing with Christian theology by making a big issue that God does not have a body. That seems to be his main 
I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a very um, interesting point. It, it, one might think he's dealing with Christian theology, right? And that, you know, the idea, one basic idea of Christianity is that uh, Jesus was the Son of God, and of course Jesus had a body, or else he couldn't have been crucified and died. But I think what, what's really significant here is that actually that's not his concern. Um, I, I, and I mention that because it's really important to know that Maimonides is writing in an Islamic context. You're right that no, no, no. It's you're right that he wouldn't like that part. Of course, of course. No, no. You're you're right that he wouldn't have liked that aspect of Christianity and didn't like that aspect of Christianity. Uh, and in this, he aligned himself very much with Islamic philosophers, who, in many ways, uh, disliked images even more than Maimonides does. Um, so, so okay. Well, we we know from what we talked about before that Maimonides thinks this idea. Um, of God having a body is extraordinarily disturbing. Okay, we get a hint at why he thinks it's disturbing. Um, if you look at uh, chapter 1, the first paragraph, he says, and I'm just going to read here, it's the one, two, three, the four lines from the bottom of the first paragraph. That's not very clear. You, you don't really have to. Listen. He says, um, now, respect, now with respect to that which ought to be said in order to refute the doctrine of the corporeality of God, okay, so to refute this idea that God is a, has a body, and to establish his real unity, which can have no true reality unless one disproves corporeality, you shall know the demonstration of all of this from this treatise. Okay, now, what does that tell us? Okay, what it tells us is that the reason Maimonides really doesn't like this idea of God having a body is because he thinks the idea of a body would mean that God was not unified. Okay? So what does it mean? Why does he want God to be unified? Why is that important? Okay? Um, so there's something about having a body that means there's no unity, and there's something about not having a body that might mean unity. Any thoughts on that? Does this keep anybody up at night? Whether God um, is unified or not? Okay, say something, please. Yes. Say, say more about that. Well, we affirm the oneness of God before we go to bed. Okay, good. Put you to sleep. Okay, good. Oh, I'm so, can you? Can, oh, the, well, the comment was we say Shema before we go to sleep. So uh, it doesn't keep us up, but it, I'm going to add to it. It helps us fall asleep. So, but I think you're right. Um, is this idea we do affirm God's oneness beforehand? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. So the the, the uh, um, comment. Should I repeat the comment? Yes. The comment was that um, there is this question about the unity of our own experience, um, and perhaps that's parallel to this question of the unity um, of God. Now. I think that's an excellent, excellent point, and I think that's a point that's actually quite relevant for our discussion of Buber. Um, but what I want to say, and I don't mean it as a, as a criticism of, of, of you here, but just to make my point uh, very strong, is Maimonides would not like that. You know why? Because for him, that's a psychological interpretation. And for him, uh, if we begin with thinking about, oh, um, well, how can I uh, you know, go about my life in a meaningful way, 
uh, which is of course anachronistic to say no one would say that to Maimonides, but if, if someone <laughs> did, um, he would say you're just, you're, you're really um, just, he would say you're an idolater. Not you, but yeah, he'd say that, that's, you know. It, no, no, but I'm saying, but for him, but for him, and I, but this is really important, is for him, um, the, the, the human being um, and God, they're, they're completely uh, incomparable, incommensurate. Uh, and, and then the tricky part becomes, how is it exactly that we can think about something that we can't think about? That's really the tricky, the, one of the very tricky points. Yes, I think that there's a, a political aspect to this, which is like really at the core of Rambam's whole project. Um, if you ask a Christian, isn't, a, isn't God having a human body, doesn't that somehow undermine God's unity? The Christian would say, what are you talking about? Of course it doesn't. Right? So I think what Rambam is saying fundamentally throughout Mishneh Torah and here also, he's saying, if you're a Jew, you have to think this way and you have to behave this way. This is how Jews do it. And don't look at the people next door who do things that look a lot like what we do because what they're doing is not Judaism. And so I think that the point of departure is if you, you can't accept these other thoughts and still consider yourself a Jew. I think that's absolutely right. I, I do want to just add to that, just to, on the point on Christianity again. He, Christianity is real, and I just think this is important, is not such a big problem for him just because for him and the context he's writing in, it's so obvious that Christianity is wrong. No, he's not. He's not worried about Christians killing him because he's living. He's right. more worried about Muslims. Right. I mean, I, you know. But but I'm saying it's so obvious that that it's that it's that it's wrong that he's not even worried about that now. So then it raises the question. Then we'll come back to this. But it's just important to to say. Um, so what is his relationship then to Islam? Um, well, he actually, uh, in many ways, he's very positive about Islam because he thinks Islam is against idolatry for these reasons. Um, but much of the guide, and this isn't our topic today, but much of the guide is dedicated to a cri- criticism, though, of aspects of Islamic theology which have to do with free will. So it does, it, it does all connect to this in the sense that, I'll give away the answer, but, but I'm going to come back to unity, is to be created in the image of God for Maimonides means to be given the capacity for reason. Okay, um, And for Maimonides, um, Christianity doesn't get this because it's idolatry. And that's what he calls it. Uh, but Islam for him, and it's, he deals with different schools and it's obviously complex, but Islam for him uh, has reason uh, but lacks free will. Okay, But we'll leave that uh, to the side. But I do want to come back to unity, okay? Yes, thank you. I, I don't understand what he means by unity, and actually I've never understood what the unity of God means. Um, it, it, it can't be singularity, it can't be angel, because there's, no, there's nothing inconsistent about having a body and being singular. Well, yeah, can you even break the body? But that's indivisibility which is different than uniqueness and indivisibility are two completely different things, it seems to me. And I, I don't know what the... Evidently, he's not talking about uniqueness. He's talking about something that can't be divided. That's correct. Now, God, but no, thank you. I mean, now these are all different ideas. Um, uniqueness, indivisibility, and, and uh, uh, I said uniqueness already, unity. Unity, individuality, and uniqueness. I'm sure I forgot. They are all different ideas. I, Maimonides does certainly consider God unique. 
in the sense that, again, God is that which is, or who is completely incomparable to the human. Okay, so unique in that sense, but we're going to bracket that. What he is interested here is, is in unity. So, so you said something about the body. You said you can be an individual body. And be unique. Okay, and unique. Okay, but can you be an individual body and be unified? Okay, good. Well, no, no, this is exactly no, this is exactly the question. So, so the, the the problem here for Maimonides with bodies, and the problem for him is with bodies. Okay, is that bodies? There's no unity in bodies in material life. Why is there no unity in material life? And this will get us a sense of what he means by unity. Yes. Okay, you haven't actualized your potentiality fully, but I want something actually much more um, mundane than that. Yes? Okay, how are you, if you're made of physical form, you're susceptible to being divided. How are you susceptible to being divided? Okay, no, no, but you're right. You're right, but let's get to, to what he means by that. Yes? It's more simply a part, I mean, a body just has different parts. Okay, good, a body has different parts. And, I mean, to Rambam, God doesn't have parts. Good. Okay, but listen. Let's put. Look, let's go with that. We have different parts. But why can't I still say that I'm unified? I mean, my arm's not going to fall off right now. Right, but you can define two arms on your body. You right. Can't divide, you can't define two different parts of God. Well, that's what he says. But why? I mean, right? I mean, I think you're right. But let's. I, I, what, I guess what I'm trying to suggest here, he actually has a point. Um, and let's. I'm saying let's 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 see what it is. Yes. Um. Because if you're susceptible to being divided in a few different parts, then it means that each part in and of itself is incomplete. Okay. Imperfect. Okay. And God can't be imperfect in everything. Every aspect of God must be complete and perfect. Okay. Okay. All true. Um, but then the but the question is, he really he really yeah, um, one more and then yes. just a little bit. Let's look on 81, which is the second uh, page. Um, does someone want to read uh, um, at the top, on the other hand, the negation of the doctrine? Or I shall read again? Um, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Unity, unless the doctrine of God through reality is denied. 
So a body cannot be one, but it's composed of matter and form, which by definition are two. It is also divisible, subject to practice. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, I forgot that this also contained this other point. I wanted to get to. But okay, but let's. We're going to come back to that point in one second. Okay. So, so we're going to come back to the point about children, women, and stupid ones, and defective natural disposition. So let's bracket that. Okay. Um, so what what is it here uh, that he's saying uh, is the problem? He's saying explicitly that because the body is composed of matter and form, it can be divided. Let's skip down a little bit. He says, you know, however, you, however, sorry, know that God, may he be honored and magnified, is not a body or subject to affections. For affection, and this is the point, affection is a change, and he, may he be exalted, is not touched by change. So the problem with bodies for Maimonides, okay, and the reason why he's using this term unity, okay, is that bodies are subject to change. Okay, so we go back to my, you know, I have different parts of my body. I mean, unfortunately, I could go outside and, you know, a big rock could fall from the sky and knock my arm off. I mean, my body can change. I have probably more pleasant ways, but I'm saying, you know, that's, uh, that's what he means. He acted upon, going back to, it's, it's not just abstract is what I'm trying to say. It is abstract in the sense of it's about how we're affected by other people, by emotions, this and that, but it's also for him very concrete. Okay, matter is change. And that's just true, isn't it? I know we have at least one scientist in the room. True matter change? Yes. We die. Exactly. We die. The excellent point. Okay. So we we die. Matter matter is is change. That's right. So you. That's right. And unity. Okay. In this sense that he that Maimonides is using here, it's unity is something that can't be divided because it's indivisible. That may be redundant, but it's indivisible. Part of the reason it's indivisible is because you can't change it. Okay? It's eternal. Okay? There's more to say about how all these ideas are connected, but for him, this issue of God having a body um, is, is the reason why it's such an offensive idea is because if God has a body, it means that God is subject to change and it means that God is not eternal. Okay? Okay. So let, let's go back now to what we just read. Okay? Uh, and this this goes to Moshe's point here about the political dimension of, of what's going on here. As abstract as the guide is, and we it gets even more abstract, uh, as abstract as it is, he, there is very much a political point here. What does he say? He says, everybody, absolutely everybody, has to know God doesn't have a body. And who does that include? It includes children, women, stupid ones, and those of a defective natural disposition. Um... So I think what he's saying is clear, right, is that he doesn't, he considers um, women, children, stupid ones, and those of a natural disposition in one category. What, yeah. what he's saying is that it's that it's more fundamental than the concept of Talmud Torah, for example. It's more, that's it's right. Not, it's not just incumbent upon you, Joseph, the scholar. That's right. This is like definitional. Well, exactly. It's definitional, and the point is it's the lowest common denominator. If even women, children, and those of defective natural disposition need to know it, then it's telling you something about how essential it is. That's right. And it needs to be taken in this sense uh, as dogma, a word we actually usually associate with Christianity, but which is quite relevant to my monitors here. It's a dogma. It's, it's a piece of information that must be taken on the basis of faith. Okay? Those who are more philosophically inclined like we are, right? Because we just explained why, well, maybe a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. But we just explained why um, 
it is that God is unified and doesn't have a body, or one aspect of it. That's good. We should still try and understand it. But even for those who are completely under, un, incapable of understanding it, um, they need to also just know this. Okay? So, we see that there is this comment uh, about women here. Okay? What I want to suggest to you is that um, Maimonides' view of women um, is very much uh, connected to basically everything he says. Or let's put it this way, everything he says is very much connected to what he says about women. And this is where we come back to Genesis 3. Okay? So let, let's, let's, move, let's, let's move on. I mean, Genesis 3, of course, um, we all know, has got a long uh, history um, from a one uh, kind of uh, classical Christian point of view. Um, wh- how would one understand Genesis 3? The fall of man, right? Original sin. They eat from the fruit um, and that's it. Okay? Uh, whose fault is it? Women. It's Eve's fault, right? Okay? This is one sort of standard uh, interpretation. Not necessarily a, a Jewish interpretation, but there are aspects. Okay. What, is, what does Maimonides have to say about this? Okay? And why is this relevant? I already said that um, he connects uh, this idea of image. He says the, the way in which man is created in the image of God is through reason. Okay. Some of you may be a little bit familiar with Plato. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. Plato may has a distinction between matter and form. Okay. Very long story, but we can make the story very short. Matter is something is subject to change. Okay. And the forms for Plato are the eternal... No, that's okay. What, would you like to... No, no. no, the forms are the eternal... I studied Plato 60 years ago. Okay, well, but you seem to remember, so that's good. That's right, that's right. Okay, so matter is... Um, right, matter is subject to change, and for, the forms are eternal. Okay, so what are the forms? That, there are many forms. They're the form of truth and justice and goodness and other such things. Okay, and colors and other things. Okay. So those are, those are the forms. So Maimonides explicitly links Adam and Eve with form and matter. Okay, Adam is form, he says, and Eve is matter. Okay, so what happens uh, in the story of Adam and Eve? What what happens according to Maimonides? We have it's kind of scattered in different parts of what he he talks about, so we're putting it together ourselves. Once you know that Maimonides thinks that um, Eve is matter and Adam is form, how do you explain what happens? Well, what, 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 let's, what, what happens? I mean, the snake comes and talks to Eve. But, I mean, the important thing for Maimonides and also, I think, for much of the rabbinic tradition, of course, is that the prohibition is actually given to who? To Adam, right? Not to Eve. Okay, given to Adam. Okay? But then... The serpent approaches Eve, and she says what the prohibition is. She also adds, you're not allowed to touch it. That's a whole interesting issue. Um, And then what happens? What does she say to her husband or to Adam? Not her husband. She doesn't say anything. So what happens? She She gives it to him. Okay. So she gives it to him, and what does he do? He eats. Okay? So what what did Adam do wrong? 
What I want to tell you without giving you. Well, you know, yeah, well, you know, it was in the garden. No, no, this, I mean, it's not explicit in the Pasuk that he knew what he was eating. It's That's true. Gave it to him and he ate it. Okay. And he said, oh, wait a minute. Oh, this, I wasn't, this is the one I wasn't supposed to eat. Okay. Okay. My, okay. <laughs> That's very interesting. What did he say? He didn't check, check the Heksha. Um, but okay, but, but what if, if Adam is form and reason and Eve is material and bodily? Yes. The reason didn't control the bodily part of our nature, but the bodily part controlled. Excellent. Okay, so can, can you that the re, the re, uh, reason didn't control the body. The reason didn't control. Um, but we'll put so form didn't control matter. Matter controlled form. Okay, so what does that mean in sort of more regular terms in terms of what actually happened here? Okay, okay. What, what it means is, right, is that um, Adam, who is reason, when he's when seeing the fruit, he's like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it. Okay? It, he, he gives in to his bodily nature. Exactly. Okay? That's the problem, according uh, to Maimonides, is that Adam gives in to his uh, bodily nature. Now, let's look at the last uh, part um, of what we had to. To, to read on page 261, um, chapter 8. Um, so let me, um, I, I'm going to read in there and just skip around a little bit. He says, form can only be destroyed accidentally, that is, on account of its connection with substance, the true nature of which consists in the property of never being without a disposition to receive form. And then I'm skipping the line. How wonderfully wise is the simile of King Solomon in which he compares matter to a faithless wife. Such a wife who is... Well, did I skip that? For matter is never without form and is therefore always like such a wife who is never without a husband, never single. And yet, though being wedded constantly seeks another man in the place of her husband, she entices and attracts him in every possible manner Till he obtains from her what her husband has obtained. The same is the case with matter. Okay, so the connection between matter and women is quite explicit. Okay, and the point is that um, the way Maimonides here understands <coughs> marriage, let's say, is that marriage is the union of form and matter, of uh, male and female, um, and so therefore women do um, have partake in form. Okay, matter always has some form in it. This is also very platonic. Um, but um, a, as we see, uh, women for him are pretty much uh, just um, matter. Now, we shouldn't conclude from this, by they the way. Matter. What's sorry? They don't, they don't matter. matter. They don't. No, no, well, that's, uh, well, no, they you know, are what's the matter. Well, well they are. No, I, th I think it's true that, and I raised this not, I'm, I'm not bringing this up in order to, I think the material speaks for itself. I'll say that. Yeah. It's, but no, no, it's not. It's not. It's not that. But but I think what's important to see is that um, the problem with women is also for Maimonides the problem with being a human being as such. Women just epitomize in in a much stronger way what it is to be a human being. Okay. So if we just read on a couple lines. He says, man's shortcomings and sins are all due to the substance of the body and not to its form, which all his merits are exclusively, uh, while all his merits are exclusively due to his form. So basically, and he has much more to say about this, but the whole problem of human life uh, is that um, we are embodied. Okay? Um, and it, there's also, 
there's a long, many long traditions in philosophy that have this perspective. So just to be very clear, Maimonides, of course, does think women are lesser than men in a very fundamental sense. But he also thinks that um, the fact that we are embodied, uh, that we are acted upon, that we change, is the problem. Okay, so what does this mean ultimately for him? What it means ultimately is that what we need to do is to train our bodies uh, in such a way that uh, we can focus um, on the um, the higher goods, okay, on the proper what he calls opinions about God, okay. Most people, he says, can't do this. Not just women; most men can't do it either. Um, but he says what we need to do is have, this is the kind of public dimension, have a kind of society in which people learn to control their appetites in appropriate ways, and those very few people who can control their appetites enough to contemplate God can do that. Yes? That's a good question. The question was, it, it, uh, I'm going to phrase it differently, but tell me if I'm saying it incorrectly. The question is, uh, is, is Maimonides' use of male and female here metaphorical, meaning we're all, every person is a you know, combination of form and matter to greater or lesser degrees, or is he really talking about men and women? Um, I think the answer is that he's really, I think, I think to some, no, I don't actually think to some extent it's both. I think he's really talking about men and women. Um, but that said, I think what's important is that he also thinks most men, in this sense, are like women. So it's, it's a very, very few men um, who are capable um, of overcoming, to some extent, the, their, their bodily uh, experience. Um, and I think, in this sense, he's not, um, he's, he's, not, he's not unusual for a philosopher in his context in having these views of women and also having these views of the body. One can, I think, without much difficulty, reinterpret what he's saying, uh, if one wanted to, 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 to be about, say, being human as such. Um, but even if one did want to talk about male and female in this sense more as metaphors, I think what's important as a kind of takeaway to remember um, is that the implication is still that our, bo- our bodily being is in some sense defective. Okay, and um, I leave it for you to decide whether you agree with that um, or not, but it's certainly um, a perspective. It's a, certainly a perspective that in different ways has uh, its place in the Jewish tradition. There are other perspectives um, as well. Okay, all right. Let's move on then to Martin Huber. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, you know, from a le- from a halakhic point of view, um, you know, women have the don't have any have any status on ju- matters of judgment uh, and that kind of thing. And so he he very much agrees with that, and, and he very much agrees with a lot of rabbinic literature that also puts together women and children and those of defective how did he put it mental disposition. So yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, but again, I want to, and I'm not trying to apologize for him, but I'm, I'm trying to just suggest that this is not 
a very unusual perspective in this context. Yes? Giant question. The question was, is he trying to reconcile platonic form with creation? Enormous question. Um, um, yeah, look, well, let me just say a lot. I, I already said that a lot of what the guide is about um, in terms of Islam is about free will. A lot of what the guide is about philosophically uh, is about the account of creation in the Bible. So from an Aristotelian point of view, um, there is no creation. The world, world is eternal. It was, the world was, need, was not created. Okay, So he does play in the guide with a platonic version of creation, um, but ultimately rejects it for the Torah's view of creation. But it's all very complex for many reasons. And it's not really clear what the conclusion is. Yes, yes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Most men are like uh, what he, you know how he understands women. As far as I know, he doesn't. I, I, I don't think he has any accounts of say exceptional women. There are very few exceptional men. And who are those exceptional men for Maimonides? I think it's Maimonides and Moses. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm saying they're very. To, to emphasize, they're very, very few. But absolutely, most men, let's put it this way, maybe this is the best, most men and most women are in the same boat. And then Adam and Eve aren't real people for him. They're just images of these types of matter and form. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Is it, is it historical or not? Um, I think he does tend to see it as, as historical. I mean, I don't think he, I mean, I, he doesn't have a view of, say, um, of the historical Adam and Eve the way that we do. Uh, in the sense that those kinds of questions about verifying the historicity of certain people are very much modern questions, or like 19th century questions. But he does tend to actually look at the Bible historically in, in that sense. Yes? But you Well, that's a good point. I mean, the question is, they're so abstract, doesn't seem to relate to the characters. I, I think that his answer would be, Maimonides' answer would be that, um, one, I mean, it's, it's, he's not offering a literal interpretation. In fact, he thinks little, literal interpretations are problematic because they lead you to think things like God has big feet. Okay? Um, in, instead, what he's doing is offering an allegorical or philosophical interpretation. But I think where it's in keeping is Adam's an imperfect person, Moses is also an imperfect person. Um, Maimonides talks a lot about Job. Job is also an imperfect person. And I think Maimonides, from Maimonides' own point of view, is an imperfect person. So even if you're one of those very few special people who can contemplate God and God's true nature, you're still an imperfect person because you're a person. And to be a person is to be imperfect. So I think in that sense, in my view at least, what he's saying... Is, is somewhat compelling in that we are always a combination of uh, reason um, and our bodily natures, and we can't get away from that. I think that his perspective is that the more we can get away from it, the better it is. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, um, but if, if that makes sense. So there is no perfect 
Um, Moses comes closest for him, but yeah. Yes. That's an excellent question. What does it mean for Adam to exist without Eve? Did, did you, was it connected to this? Well, again, I think it, I think it's complicated, but I think that the, the, the bottom line for him is that first of all, Adam doesn't exist without Eve because they're created together, right? But the step part of the separation has to do with the nature of being human being, right? So for Adam to become fully human, there has to be the separation. But to be fully human is always to have the struggle between form and matter. Could Adam have sinned if he wasn't separated from me? Or could he have sinned, I guess, if he wasn't separated from um, me? I don't think so. I don't think so, yeah. Yes? It seems to me that the, the important thing that Maimonides has to say about gender is that God has a God is genderless. And that I think that's right. The comment was that uh, God, Maimonides' view seems to yes, be that God is genderless. Yes, of course, from Maimonides' point of view, God has to be genderless uh, because gender is something particular uh, to human beings. That's absolutely right. So that aspirationally, we would become more and more unattached to gender. It's interesting. Aspirationally, then, we would become more unattached to gender was the comment. I think, again, in Maimonides is in enormously complicated thinker but I think that no 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 but I think that what you're, you're raising an interesting point which I would put it slightly like this why doesn't Maimonides just become an ascetic or become a monk or something okay and I think what's important one of the many things that's important about Maimonides is he is still very much a rabbinic uh, sage and so for him uh, sort of uh, um, be fruitful and multiply uh, having children is very much part of what it means to be a human being uh, and so it's in those ways that we imitate, one of the ways in which we imitate God. Um, so he, he does very much have a place uh, for society, for families, uh, but the ultimate um, perfection of the human being is not uh, to be part of a family or to be part of a society or to be part of a people, but it's, it's, de- it's instead very individual. So let's put it this way, children uh, and society um, are uh, necessary but not sufficient conditions for human perfection. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So there is actually a transition to Martin Buber here. Not that I'm going to just say, uh, now we're done, let's go to Martin Buber. So, so let me transition uh, in, into Buber. Um, and the transition is going to be uh, Buber's interpretation of Genesis 3. Okay which I'm just going to say um, a very uh, little bit about. And even though I put on the outline, I first give you a brief introduction, and then Genesis 3. I'm going to do the opposite to make this a little uh, smoother. So what does Buber have to say uh, about Genesis 3? Um, and one of the interesting points, of course, about Genesis 3 um, 
is what what exactly happens? What's the result? I mean, if we look at, for instance, um, what God says is going to happen, and that's in chapter 2, verse 17, when he tells Adam, you can't eat from the tree of uh, knowledge. What will happen to you if you eat from the tree of knowledge? You'll become like God. Uh, no? Let's, let's look at it. That's what the snake says. Okay, the snake, that's what the snake says, right? Well, God, what does God says? God says you'll die, okay, if you eat from the tree of knowledge, right? Okay? So God says, right, you'll eat from the tree of knowledge, don't do it. What happens um, in Genesis 3? Let's look at 3 7. Um, they don't seem to die. Okay, their eyes were opened, right? Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they perceived that they were naked. Okay, and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so we, the, 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 God tells Adam, if you eat from this, you'll die. When they eat from it, their eyes are open. Yes? I've always had a question about whether God's concept here, when he puts them in the Garden of Eden, was that they were eternal. Like, when does death come into it? Right. Is, is it that if they didn't eat, they would, they would live forever? I just want to... Yeah, well, I'm getting these very tiny questions. Um, right. um, I mean, no, I think that's a big. I think that's a big. That's a big question. I think that the, the question is when were they supposed to live forever, Adam? I, mean, I think the important thing is, I'll just say on this note is that remember, death, um, well, at least according to the rabbinic tradition, is created as part of creation. Now, biblically, it's more ambiguous, but from a rabbinic point of view, that maybe they were. I think worried what you were worried about, Suffer. right? Um, so, so okay. So what? So what's going on here? Now, this is a this is a big subject. I mean, it, it has to do with what does it mean to know good and evil? Okay, uh, it, it's clearly not death in the way we understand death in the sense of not being alive, but it's to have your eyes opened. Okay, so for Maimonides, and he's actually he and Buber are actually somewhat close to each other on this, but I'm going to leave that aside. But for Maimonides, what it means to have your eyes opened means that you're no longer um, part of um, pure obedience to God. So you know good and evil. You had this opportunity, or Adam had this opportunity, to not have to know good and evil, um, but now he knows it. Now that's Buber's interpretation also, okay? What, that they now know good and evil. But what does that mean for Buber? What that means for Buber is that what Adam and Eve become aware of uh, is the, the way in which... Um, Creation is all about division, okay? Creation, if you think back to uh, the first chapters of Genesis, uh, how God creates the world, divides the heavens from the earth, it's all about division, okay? And God knows this, being God, okay? But when the humans eat from the tree, they now can see the divisions in creation, okay? But Buber concludes that this is, on the one hand, what's difficult about being a human being, because we can see the divisions in creation only from a, point, a human point of view, only from a finite point of view, but he also says this is what's glorious about being a human being, which is that we can, even while still being human and still being limited, see the complexity and the divisions in creation. That all sounds very abstract, doesn't it? Very abstract. Okay. I'm going to try and make it a little bit less abstract, um, which is that Buber connects male and female together as part of the divisions of creation. So on the question of uh, did, did God have to separate them or not, uh, Adam and Eve, Buber says yes, and that's very good. 
Um, and for him, um, male and female, when they come together, it is, on the one hand, there's a unification, but there's still division. So creation for Buber is always about division and simultaneous unification. Now, this is, this is um, there's much to say about this, but what I want to say for our point is that Maimonides, we saw, is very interested in eternity. I, I, I meant to say unity, but unity as eternity, okay? Maimonides is interested in the changeless nature of God. And so the best that humans can do for Maimonides is to imitate that changeless nature. So what's changeless? Well, maybe knowledge is changeless from Maimonides' point of view. If we really know something about science and the way things work, that doesn't change. That would be his perspective. Buber is all about change, okay? Buber likes change, okay? In fact, change um, is what makes human life possible. It's what makes our relationships with other people possible. It's what makes our relationship with God possible, okay? So whereas um, Genesis 3 for Maimonides is all about, uh, I'm going to use the word fall, not exactly in a Christian sense, but the fall away from the unity of God, okay, being in the presence of God and knowing what, being obedient to God without having to choose. Um, For Buber, uh, Genesis 3 is about uh, change uh, and the way in which all of our attempts in life to sort of come together, as male and female do, um, are always, uh, because of change, and always produce more changes. Yes? Isn't creation anti-unity? Um, isn't creation anti-unity? Well, the opposite of unity. Um, it's a, it's a very, yeah, it's a, well, it depends, you mean the act of creation. The act of creation. Isn't, yes, the act of creation, yes, is all about division. Well, it's, it's a very interesting question, um, and um, Maimonides, to, where it's more of an issue for, I mean, for him, um, creation is always changing, but he also argues that the world does um, uh, work according to its own eternal laws. So the world exists independently, God creates the world in such a way that the world exists independently of God. So there is a kind of constant there, but you're right, because the world is material, it is always changing. And does creation take place before, I mean, the first break in unity is the separation of man, man and woman from a one creature, whether it's male, female, hermaphroditic, or whatever. So what, what, where, when does creation really take place? Does creation of the planets mean anything? They're very tiny questions here. Yeah. Uh, right. So when did creation take place? I mean, I think, and I, um, I think that one of the issues is, and then I'll leave it, and it, just to get back to this, is I think one of the issues is, um, I think from many people's perspectives in the Jewish tradition and in other traditions, um, creation, um, the first separation, isn't actually between male and female, but it's between God and creation. Right. But then you run into problems because then the question is how are God and creation related to one another? Uh, Maimonides expresses a very kind of extreme position where he wants to say there's absolutely no relationship between the two. Okay, because he wants God has to be so completely separate and different from human beings. Whereas other strands of the Jewish tradition and other traditions see much more of a link between the two. And this relates to the question about Plato's view of creation, it has to do with this whole issue of whether or not it's creation from nothing. 
But I leave this as a side. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I just want to get back to the gender yeah. issue. I think if you look at this whole story, Eve is really the one who's causing the change. Eve is the one who gets them out of this bubble, mm-hmm. if you want to call right. the Garden of Eden. Right. They're not functioning as autonomous human beings with real differentiation. I don't know what you call the earthquakes or something. But they're not uh, what we call human beings. Eve, by her yeah. going along with this, of getting Adam passive as he is, he shakes this whole thing up. Right. And therefore, we have human possibility emerging. If they had stayed in the garden the way it was, even there would be no development, no human development. So, and even though Eve is always criticized and downgraded, she is the agent of change here. Okay, good, thank you. So the point here was that Eve is the agent of change. Um, and to bring it to, uh, back to Maimonides and Boomer for a second, that's right. And for Maimonides, Eve is the agent of change, and that's why Eve is problematic and matter is problematic. For Boomer, Eve is the agent of change. That's why, um, for him, change is good. Uh, and in this sense, um, Eve would be positive. Uh, that's right. That's right. Okay? So, so let's, um, so that's just a little bit on Boober on, on Genesis 3, but I want to get to some, some other Boober uh, issues, okay? Because this is really um, uh, g- going back to our, our broader topic, what kind of creatures of, are we, what kind of being, if a being at all is God? So for Boober, what kind of creatures are we? We are creatures who are affected, with an A, okay? We are creatures who are affected. A. Affected, yes. We are creatures who are acted upon. We are vulnerable beings, okay? And for Buber, that is the challenge of being a human being, but that's also the glory of being a human being. So let me say something about Buber's context in order to try and get a little bit more uh, into his ideas. Now, we're jumping many centuries, okay? So forgive me, please. But still, I'm Okay, we're jumping many things. So, so why, why, why does Buber make this argument? What's bothering him? Right? We talked a bit about what's bothering Maimonides. What's bothering Maimonides is he's worried that you can't be both a great philosopher and read the Bible. Very disturbing. Okay? What's bothering Buber? Okay? He's writing in a context uh, in which he and people of his generation very much believe that civilization uh, is kind of crashing and burning and coming to its end. Okay, he's writing in the wake of the First World War, okay? and he, like many of his contemporaries, uh, believes that what modernity has brought, and again, we're only talking about the First World War here, what modernity has brought is not great progress uh, in either uh, sort of social values or in political values, but what it has brought is uh, destruction uh, and murder. And this is what he um, is worried about. Okay. And what he wants to argue is that not just Jews, but he does think the Jewish tradition has something special to offer, but people in general need to come back and understand their fundamental natures. And what is the human being's fundamental nature? The fundamental nature is that we are always in relationship with others. Uh, We are always vulnerable to others. uh, And that's what constitutes Relationship, and that's also what constitutes the relationship with God. So, just a, a little bit of background um, about Buber. Buber, um, there, there are many actually interesting. I was just thinking this as I had prepared this. That there are interesting similarities between Buber and Maimonides in the sense that both of them are really um, figures who are as involved in 
non-Jewish debates and debates of their day as they are involved in Jewish debates. Now, lots of times when people think about Buber, they think about him as not being very traditionally Jewish. Um, and there's something true about that, which I'll say about soon, but I think what's very important to know about Buber in terms of um, his biography is that Buber, unlike many others of his generation, such as Gershom Sholem, the great um, scholar of uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, or Franz Rosenzweig, who I'm going to talk about tomorrow, uh, and a number of others, Buber actually had an excellent Jewish education. Okay? Buber was raised by his grandfather, whose name and grandmother, Solomon Buber, who was uh, a scholar of the Midrash. Uh, and Buber, um, as I said, had an excellent uh, Jewish education. Many German Jews um, who had very sophisticated non-Jewish educations uh, not only didn't know anything about Judaism until they were adults, but they learned quite a lot, of course. Uh, they also didn't really know any, you know, quote-unquote, real Jews. Okay, Buber was different. He had a very strong education. His grandfather was also very much involved uh, in uh, charitable work with Eastern European Jews, and he had a lot of exposure to Jews of all walks of life. I mention this because it's important to know that Buber, while he in very in, he himself said was rejecting. Uh, many components of what became traditional Judaism, the Buber did that uh, based on his knowledge of the tradition. So he, he knew what he was rejecting when he rejected it. I just want to be very um, clear about that. So who was Buber? As I said, he, his, his uh, mother um, left his father when little Buber was two years old um, and uh, basically abandoned him, and that's why he was raised by uh, his grandfather. Um, he uh, Grew up uh, very well educated. He, uh, you know, spoke about ten languages. Uh, he gave his bar mitzvah speech on Nietzsche. If anyone wants to read it, it's now published in German. Oh if you want it, it was originally in Polish. Um, he, he um, became uh, very uh, interested, actually, in Chinese poetry, uh, and he was a translator of Chinese into German. This is just to give you a sense of his breadth. Um, he wasn't, if that might suggest, that interested in Judaism <laughs> as a young man. Uh, he becomes interested in Judaism as a young man eventually. Why? Because of Zionism. Uh, he's very attracted to Zionism, particularly in the wake of World War I, when there is a backlash against uh, German Jews. Um, and um, because of his interest in Zionism, he decides to learn Hebrew again. I mean, he did know Hebrew, but he... he um, decides to immerse himself and so one of the ways in which he immerses himself is he starts translating the tales of the Hasidim uh, into uh, German. Okay, um, Very talented uh, with languages among other things. Um, Buber did many uh, other things. He also, uh, maybe I'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow, he, he translated the Bible uh, into German with Franz Rosenzweig. Did a lot, again, very talented there. In 1938, Buber immigrated to Palestine uh, he became a uh, professor at the Hebrew University. They actually wouldn't give him a job in the Jewish thought department uh, for reasons you might guess. And uh, instead he was given uh, a job in social philosophy. Um, and you may know that he was very involved with an organization called uh, Brit Shalom, which was uh, an organization dedicated to um, binationalism in Palestine. Uh, he wrote a lot on education. Uh, he wrote a lot actually on drama. Uh, wrote a lot of things, um, and um, he's one of, I think, uh, a few uh, 
German Jewish thinkers or European Jewish thinkers who actually went back to Germany after the war uh, and became very involved in Jewish-Christian uh, dialogue. Um, so there, there's lots to say about Buber, um, but I'll just leave it um, at that. So I mentioned um, Buber's um, maybe non-traditional approach to Judaism. He was very interested in, in Hasidism, okay? Let's, let's, you should have an outline, and then on the back of the outline, there should be, um, there should be uh, a quote from Hasidism and Modern Man. Okay? Um, basically, Buber argues... Is that correct? Or is it a separate page? Yeah, back of the outline. Yes, thank you. Okay, page two, yes. Okay. Now, Buber... Um, Buber... Well, let's just read this. Hasidism on Modern Man. Why doesn't someone read it? I'm, I'm not a good reader out loud. But I can't read you. But go ahead. Yeah. The Baal Shem teaches that no encounter with a being or a thing in the course of our life lacks a hidden significance. The people we live with or meet with, the animals that help us without our farm work, the soil we kill, the materials we achieve, the tools we use, they all contain a mysterious spiritual substance which depends on us for helping it toward its pure form, its perfection. If we neglect the spiritual substance said across our path, if we think only in terms of momentary purposes, without developing a genuine relationship to the beings and and things and things being whose life we ought to take part as they in ours, we shall ourselves be debarred from true fulfillment. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Okay. So um we could, of course, spend many days or weeks or years on what Buber had to say about Hasidism. But what I want to do uh, just very briefly is talk about what he has to say about Hasidism and how it relates to what we're going to talk about in his philosophy in I and Now. So the key point here is uh, the last um, part of the last sentence, okay? If we think only in terms of momentary purposes, without developing a genuine relationship to the beings and things in whose life we ought to take part, as they and ours, then we shall ourselves be debarred from true fulfilled existence. Okay? This is what he understands Hasidism to be. Okay? Can anyone say what they think that means in ordinary terms? And if you can't, that's okay. Yes? Okay. Okay, everything is spiritual. And what does that mean? Okay, the joy of life. Good. And how do you take advantage of the joy of life? Living. Okay, live. Okay, good. Part of that you're all connected. Okay. Okay, Okay. connect, yes? By having meaningful relationships with the people and beings around you. Okay, good. Yes? It means that we also have responsibility for everything we encounter in, in the world. We have responsibility to engage engage with it and to, in Hasidic terms, to try to elevate it. Good. Right, exactly. And we could say a lot about Hasidism and his interpretation of Hasidism and Tikkun Olam, but we're going to bracket that. Yes. Loudly, please, just because I can. Good. Okay, thank you. So he's... um, 
the, the comment was he's referring to this notion of sparks and the job of the human being in the world. And just very simply, and there's again a lot to say about this, this Kabbalistic notion of simsum uh, or God's contraction of, we're talking back about how the world got created. God contracts God's self and bursts into many pieces. Uh, and the task of uh, life and of Jewish life in particular is to redeem those sparks of creation through our deeds. He's very much picking up on this, very much interpreting Hasidism uh, in this way. Now, how does this relate to then the part about modern man? Okay, it's, it's twofold, I want to suggest to you. Um, look at, again, if we think only in terms of momentary purposes, okay, Buber's view of modern life is that we only think about things in terms of momentary purposes. Okay? That's what the modern world has become. And let's even cross out that momentary. We only think about things in terms of purposes. We do things for a reason. We relate to people for a reason. We uh, use things for a reason. Um, and he doesn't think that's intrinsically bad. We have to do that. Okay? But he thinks that the problem is that that's all life has become, is doing things for purposes. Okay? So let's, let's think about uh, I am now uh, for a moment, and then I'm going to have you just, um, just want to make sure we have time, uh, uh, read some uh, I am now. Um, so I am now, okay? I am now um, is Buber's, I think, most famous book. And, uh, of course, it's a bad translation, uh, because those of you who know some German uh, know that um, there are two ways to say you in German, right? What's oh, yeah. yeah, right? Okay, one is a more formal way, and I suppose we would translate that as I and thou, even though we don't tend no, to use... That was the familiar. That was the filled... But I guess what I meant is that the thou is the... sounds to us like the formal. Because no, it's English. wrong. It's, it's, it's wrong. a familiar form in English. Would be do and not see. That's correct. It can do in German. Okay, so it's probably my point. I thank you. My point is that it's better translated, even if for wrong reasons, as I and you, and not as I and thou. Okay, is that he is trying here to use the? I think it was a mistake in my opinion. Of, but yeah, <laughs> he is trying to use the familiar I and you. Okay, not not something formal. Um, I and you. So he has a contrast between I, you, or I, thou relations and I, it relations. Okay? And the important point here is that he's not saying uh, we should only have I, you relations and get rid of I, it relations. As human beings, we always live in the world of I, it relations. We always do things for reasons. We have purposes in life. But what we need to recover, what the modern human being needs to recover, is the I-U dimension of humanity, our humanity and of reality, which is the deeper dimension. So before we, we, we look at some of the passages from I and Thou, um, let me uh, just say that um, why Buber rejects the rabbinic tradition. Okay? He's very explicit about rejecting uh, the rabbinic tradition. From his perspective, um, halakha, or in a focus only on halakha, is to be in the realm of I-it relations. Why is it to be in the realm of I-it relations? Yes. <coughs> Fixed patterns you have to abide by. Good. 
Good, they're fixed pat patterns. You have to write a bye bye. They can't be subject to change. And um, there, there are a few more things. Any? Yes? Well, I guess the notion of cloud and like winning your portion in the world and having everything is purpose driven. Everyth exactly. Everything is purpose driven, right? You do things for a reason. And even if that reason is just to be following the mitzvot, it's still a reason, okay? There's a purpose uh, in, in all of it. And finally, uh, the third reason is because from Buber's perspective, and you can agree or disagree with this, um, he, he looks at halakha in the same way as he looks at modern law in general, which is that if you think about the rule of law, he's also a critic, I want you to see, of, of modern liberalism. Uh, in, he's on the left, but he's a critic of liberalism. Okay? Um, what is this idea of the rule of law? And he sees halakha in this way. It's the idea that everyone is treated the same under the law. Okay? And so from Buber's perspective, the law, or halakha, treats every human being as an object. That's the whole point of law, is it applies to everyone in every place. Right? So he's very much, as I said, a critic, a critic of that, and very much argues that Hasidism... Um, is the Jewish movement, the modern Jewish movement, that uh, returns to uh, the true meaning of Judaism, which he also finds not just in Hasidism, which is, of course, an 18th century movement, but which he finds mainly in biblical texts. Okay, He's a big uh, writer uh, on the Bible. Okay, so with that, what I'd like you to do um, is to read what we have uh, from I Am Now, which is not... Uh, too much. What I'd like to ask you to do is to um, look at, um, you'll see once again that these are not all connected to each other. Uh, if you look at page 54 and 55, which is the first page, there he's going to have this distinction between I, it, I, you. Okay? I want you to think about what those relationships mean. I want you to think about maybe an example of an I, it relationship. A very concrete example, not, and it shouldn't be something just like, um, you know, using a person for your own purposes. So that's a good example. But, th but think about what you might mean outside even human relations. And think of an example of an IU relation. The next two pages that I have for you, um, I'm trying to keep with this theme of, of looking at gender, uh, is I want you to look at what he has to say uh, about women. Uh, and the body in this context, because part of what I'm, I'm trying to uh, suggest today is that this answer to this question of you know who is the human being and who is God, um, it's it's very interesting to see how these can play along uh, different understandings of of gender. Okay, so let's uh, do that in. Can we do that in 12 minutes? Uh, see, now that uh, we're, we're doing Goober and uh, if people come tomorrow, Rosenzweig and um, Levinas, I can you know make my joke, which is that uh, you know for them it's really good to be interrupted. So, uh, but, but you only get it if you well, because for them interruption that's when you encounter the others. So you're welcome. Just kidding. Okay. All right. Um, so. So let's, um, let's talk uh, a bit uh, about Uber. So I asked you um, to give an example of an IU-IIT relationship. And, and before I ask you for those specific ones, let's just look on 54 at the bottom, uh, the last section. 
uh, whereas he says, the life of the human being does not exist merely in the sphere of goal-directed verbs. Again, see the connection to what he's saying about Hasidism. It's not just about doing things for particular reasons. It does not consist merely of activities that have something for their object. I perceive something, I feel something, I imagine something, I want something, I sense something, I think something. The life of a human being does not consist merely of all this and its like. All this and its like is the basis of the realm of it, but the realm of you has another basis. Okay? Now, back to Maimonides for one second. For Maimonides, um, life is about purposes. Okay? It is about doing things for reasons. Okay? It's not only about doing things for reasons because there is contemplation and the end of contemplation is contemplation though I suppose that's still a reason uh, we do things for reasons we act in purposeful ways but that's a product of our intellect right that, that's part of what it means to be an intelligent creature uh, and there are animals who can some animals who can do this as well uh, that's a sign right of, of, of intelligence and part of what Buber seems to be saying here is that's not the most essential characteristic of being human. Okay? So, an example of an I-it relationship. Yes, thanks. that's an excellent example, right? I think it's an excellent example because um, it doesn't mean that being an intern and, and being an intern for that reason, which is the reason people are interns, um, is, is bad, right? Uh, there's nothing intrinsically bad about that. That's what internships are for. Um, so th I think that's a very helpful uh, example. Other examples? Yes, thanks. I missed the beginning. So. And a tennis instructor. A tennis instructor. Did you say tennis? Okay, okay, good. Good, so right. So the, the, it's an also a really, no, it's a really good example because you you don't want to pay for your tennis lesson if the tennis instructor just wants to hear about your day. Right. I mean, right? Exactly. Okay? Good. Now, I, I have, I generally can't stop myself when I say this, so I apologize in advance, but one way I think of it is, um, has anyone seen Mary Poppins lately? Which is an excellent film. Uh, so if you think about um, the uh, that song that Dick Van Dyke does about investing uh, at the bank, remember Michael Banks tricks, well Mary Poppins gets uh, Mr. Banks to take the children to the bank, remember, to his work, and on the way the little boy, Michael Banks, he wants to use his money to feed the birds um, and his father won't let him. And then the Dick Van Dyke character sings the song about investment, railways in Africa, goes on and on. I think it's a very boober moment uh, because the whole point is that's what the I-8 relationship is about. It, it's about investment in the sense of doing things for a reason, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because it's also about the particularly modern way of doing things. So Boomer, I want you to see, is a critic 
um, of certain, um, let's just call them for lack of a better term, modern liberal values. Okay? He's a critic of imperialism. He's a critic of colonialism. This whole idea uh, that you invest... He's a critic of capitalism, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yes. It's this whole idea of investment um, and therefore using investment to uh, impersonally uh, change the world. Uh, he, he thinks that's fundamentally problematic. And so if you think about the little boy, Michael Banks, who wants to just feed the birds, um, that's what the I... You relationship uh, is about is it's it's just for the pure experience of feeding the birds. Yes. So why does he have such a backlash against halacha, like Talmud and rabbinics, and uh, he tends to do if if in the Talmud and like this like the Chazal they 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 espouse doing things in Shema like for their own sake and just the highest form of learning Torah is for its own sake the highest form of religion is for its own sake so it seems pretty much in line with his whole for its own sake without a purpose so. good question okay so the question is this: the rabbinic notion of Torah Lishma for its own sake isn't that what Buber's saying well, why is it critical I think it's an excellent question Buber first of all um, and this is where it is very context specific is relating to um, a, a certain type of um, for lack of a better term orthodoxy of his day in which um, the law is seen in a very rigid manner um, and not seen as for its own sake but nonetheless I think he would still be a critic of Torah Lishma uh, why? because one of the things he likes about Hasidism is its lack of intellectualism and that's one of the things that has at least historically marked Hasidism as a populist movement, was that the highest goal wasn't um, to be uh, a great Tamid uh, Chacham, but instead to have a relationship with God, or I suppose a relationship with the Tzadik. Uh, so I think it's in that sense too. Now there is an irony in that, of course, uh, in that Buber really wasn't intellectual. Okay? Uh, in, in, and so... I don't want to, you know, push that too too far, but I think that that would really be his view. I don't think he he would have seen in his own life a lot of Torah lishma, that kind of perspective. I think he was very much arguing against a, a legal, kind of very legalistic um, view of, of Judaism, which was pretty uh, dominant. Um, yes. I think what troubles me about this discussion is we're looking at these as two pure types, whereas almost any relationship has a little bit of one and a little bit of the other, and uh, some have more of the it and less yeah. of the thou, but there's no pure type of any of these things. Like, suppose you have a car. If you have it long enough, you develop sometimes an emotional <laughs> relationship with the car. And it, beca- it, it takes on a cer- certain thouness. Now, it might be only 10% of your relationship to your, you know, Toyota Camry has a thou quality to it. Uh, and 90% has a more pragmatic, measurable, you know, uh, purposeful quality yes. to it. But I think every relationship has a little of each and for him to talk of pure thou and pure it to me makes it meaningless what he's saying. You know. It okay. becomes ridiculous. Right. Okay, no, no, well, he's reducing it to an absurdity. Well, I, I think then I've misrepresented him if, if that's the, the impression you've gotten because he's not uh, that's why I like in particular this example of, of the internship and the tennis instructor uh, is because the, the, the idea relationships aren't intrinsically bad. 
He's not. We're always in an ayat world. We do things for purposes. Obviously, we, we you know, it's, it's good to be intelligent. It's good to. Um, but you're implying he's a, or maybe you are, that it's one or the other. That it's either I, no. an ayat or an ayat now. No, no. What you're saying now is that the ayat may have some positive values to it. It's popular ideas. You know, but, but, no. but actually, the ayat yeah. can. Right. The fact that these things combine. Well, they, and, and it, it's a continuum. It is a continuum, but I think that the point I, I do, I do want to no, but a point I do want to make, um, and this is why I mentioned the Mary Poppins example, is because I think what's important to see is that Buber is writing in a particular context in which he thinks the world has become almost entirely I it, okay. and this dimension of human experience has been lost. Now I leave it to you all to think about whether that's applicable to our context. In the context in which he was writing, I think there was good reason to think that it was quite quite applicable. And so for that reason, and I think he would say this, he overemphasizes the I-thou relation, but that's because that's exactly what needs to be overemphasized. Maybe another way of putting it is that he needs uh, to also have, um, maybe he would have had a more positive view of halakha in another context. Though if we, let's, let's look at the back of the outline once more. Um, I just want to mention to you what he uh, has to say, even though it doesn't sound like he's talking about Halakha and Ayavau. Uh, but this is his view. He says, this is the second quotation, he says, man receives, and what he receives is not a content, but a presence. A presence as a strength, the eternal voice sounds, nothing more. Okay? That's Google's view of God's commanding nature. He does think that there is this experience uh, that a human being can have with God, in which and it can be through having an experience with another person, but it, or it can be an experience of God. But he doesn't think that that experience, by definition, can have any specific content. Okay. Okay. Let's let's skip the second one and let's look more specifically at um, a little essay that he wrote uh, in 1929 about the Ten Commandments, and I think this maybe summarizes his view best. He says. The Ten Commandments are not part of an impersonal codex governing an association of men. They are uttered by an owl and an eye and addressed to a thou. They begin with the eye and every one of them addresses the thou in person. An eye commands and a thou, every thou who hears this thou is commanded. The word does not enforce its own hearing. Whoever does not wish to respond to the thou addressed to him can apparently go about his business unimpeded. Thou he who speaks the word has power. He has renounced this power of his sufficiently to let every individual actually decide for himself whether he wants to open or close his ears to the voice, and that means whether he wants to choose or reject the I am of I am. Okay? So because we're a bit short on time, and I have a couple other things I want to say, let me, let me just parse what he's saying here. He's saying his understanding of the Ten Commandments is not, as one might think, that God is saying um, these are things you should do and shouldn't do, and if you don't, if you do, then you'll be rewarded, and if you don't do, then you'll be punished. He says, no, 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 that's not what the Ten Commandments is at, at all. He says, what the Ten Commandments is, is God offering to the human being the possibility of being in a relationship with God. And God purposefully, according to Buber, uh, withholds God's power, meaning that God makes God's self vulnerable to the human being, which means that the human being can say no to God. Okay? This is his claim. Now, I think it's a it's a controversial claim about the Ten Commandments. Yes. Because 
Now, again, a big, big topic, um, we'll leave Library of Cap for a minute, but um, is I think the way Buber would uh, argue against that would be that what God is being, what God is making known in the Ten Commandments, and this is this is what the command or the tibuing means, he would say, uh, is God's presence, okay? Um, and it's God's presence that, for Buber, uh, is the important thing. Uh, it's the presence that's commanding, but not any specific content uh, of the command. Now, of course, it is a controversial claim, and I, I, I put it here uh, for that reason. I'm trying to show that uh, his interpretation um, of Judaism and of um, not just halakha, but law in general, that's why the Ten Commandments, I think, is, is, is relevant here, um, is quite extreme. Okay, it, it is quite extreme, but I want to emphasize it's not to defend or to criticize Buber. I want to emphasize that, um, you know, he knew what he was saying. Um, he is very deliberately making this kind of argument um, to be provocative. Yes? that, I mean, it's, it, 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 in the same way that um, if you read um, Maimonides and then you open up the book of Genesis, uh, you may see some tension between the two. Uh, in the same way, if you read what Buber is saying here about the Ten Commandments or what he says about law in general, and you read the book of Exodus, you're going to also see some tension, okay? Uh, but that's part of what uh, interpretation is about, I think, is Yes, okay. So let me just say a, a couple more things. I know we're running uh, short of time, but um, since I did have a chance um, with Maimonides to maybe draw out a little bit what he has to say about uh, Christianity and Islam, uh, I wanted to say one thing about uh, what Buber um, has to say uh, about Christianity, which you may find interesting. And it actually relates to this question of commandments. Um, Buber made a very famous distinction uh, between uh, Jesus and Paul, uh, and he very, uh, was very positive about Jesus and very negative about Paul. Uh, and this is something Buber wrote. He wrote, From my youth onwards I have found in Jesus my great brother, that Christianity has regarded and does regard him as God and Savior has always appeared to me a fact of the highest importance, which for his sake and my own I must endeavor to understand. I am more than ever certain that a great place belongs to him, that's Jesus, in Israel's history of faith, and that this place cannot be described by any of the usual categories. Okay, so why does Buber like Jesus? Okay, um, and I think this is, this is in, very important to understanding what his argument uh, is. For Buber, um, Jesus very much articulates um, what the prophets are articulating. So he doesn't see Jesus as offering any kind of distinct uh, commandments, love your neighbor, 
Okay, this is this is how Buber understands Jesus. But what's important for Buber, and interestingly, he uses Jesus for this, is this notion of faith of Emunah. Okay, and what Buber wants to say is that the difference between Jesus and Paul, and Paul for Buber stands in for Christianity, uh, is that Jesus understands faith in terms of trust, in terms of relationship. Okay, and it's for that reason very consistent with the Hebrew Bible. Okay, and then that, for that reason, from Buber's point of view, Jesus is very Jewish. It's all about relationship. It's about faith as trust, as relation, as opposed to Paul, uh, in which faith is understood as dogma. Okay, as particular things to believe about God. Okay, such as God became man and um, died for the sins of the world, for instance. So. I bring this up just uh, for two reasons. One, because I, I just want you to see how um, both Maimonides and Buber's claims about who we are as human beings and their claims about who God is, how, how those are connected to their different claims um, about our relationship to other people, uh, to other uh, groups of people. Um, this is distracting me. Okay, so, um, yes? Right. I mean, I think what he'd want to say is that we should pay more attention to attention to the relationships we have with people. Um, I think what he'd want to say is that we are vulnerable people. And all people are vulnerable and have needs, uh, and we're at our most human when we know that um, and respond to the needs of others. I do want to go back to this this uh, comment before about Torah lishma and put in here that I think for Buber maybe something like Derisha or, or any. Uh, context in which one comes to do something for its own sake, to learn for its sake with others, I think for Buber would be a very important thing. Uh, one can see this sometimes in university, sometimes not. But the point being, uh, to do activities that are done for the sake of doing them in relationship to other people. I think he, that's what he would say is the practical matter. Now, I mean, from a practical point of view as well, I mean, he... Um, is very interested um, primarily in, in individual relationship as opposed to group relationships. And that, I think, has different kinds of uh, political implications. Okay? All right. I do want to let you go, but I do, since I realized we didn't do it, I hope you all noticed uh, Buber's reference to um, the womb of the great mother. Did everyone catch that? Okay. Uh, where is it? Uh, yeah, on uh, 76. This is just also meant as an interesting contrast, in my opinion, with Maimonides, 76, the last paragraph. Every developing human child rests like all developing beings in the womb of the great mother, the undifferentiated, not yet formed primal world. From this it detaches itself to enter a personal life, and it is only in dark hours when we slip out of this again, as happens even to the healthy night after night, that we are close to her again. But this detachment is not sudden and catastrophic like that from the body, bodily mother. The human child is granted some time to exchange the natural association with the world that is slipping away for a spiritual association, a relationship. So the point being that um, for Buber, it's this relationship with the mother to the womb of the mother uh, in which um, 
we find kind of the epitome of relationship, but what's also important for him is the separation uh, that the child eventually has with the mother. And so it is always separation and relation for him. Uh, but once again, I think in the same way that gender plays out uh, in what Maimonides has to say in his um, valuation, Maimonides' valuation of the intellect over the body or form over the matter, we see similarly in Buber um, with Buber's valuation of human vulnerability and affectivity um, over reason, uh, we see the way in which um, I think some of these gender issues play out. And finally, it's, it's interesting in the context of Buber too, this womb comes up a lot. Um, we'll see if anyone's coming tomorrow, this comes up actually in Buber and Rosenzweig as well, um, but it's interesting in the context of Buber's life with his you know, mother who abandoned him. Uh, I think it's, it's very uh, interesting and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. In any case, uh, what, uh, in conclusion, um, I hope you have seen the ways in which the question of who we are as human beings relates to the question of who God is or what God is, uh, how that, the, the answer to those questions relate to um, questions about our relations to other people. If, if any people are coming tomorrow, I'll just say that the topic for tomorrow in looking at Rosenzweig and Levinas will then be looking at the question of what is what does it mean to what what is the quality of relationships what what does it mean to be in relationship with other people or with God is it a relation of affirmation is it a relation of judgment uh, what is relation.